This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hello! Hey! This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough. And you have now entered episode 12. There is no turning back. And we are resisting the urge to be like, oh my god, this is episode 12. Because you know what? We're saving that for our, what is it, um, silver anniversary? Which we the 25th episode. 25th episode, like make a, make a promise right now. If we make it to 25, what are you going to do? Hmm... If we make it to 25, I will have a glass of wine, which you know I have. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like gasping as I'm sitting here holding a glass of wine in my hand. If, if I'm going to do that, what are you going to do? Drink a bottle of wine. Okay, that's okay. I'm good. joking. I do that anyway. Right. Two bottles. <laughs> I was going to say, two bottles of wine, and we'll both be the same level of intoxication. So Possibly. Yeah. I'll probably be like, yeah, I'm fine, and you'll... <laughs> be on the floor with my feet in my mouth. You already do that every time. <laughs> Shame on you. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Let's get back to the actual episode. Yes, we're continuing our femininity theme yes. in honor of March being Women's History Month. Yes. So, it's your turn. It is. And um, we talked about this last time a little bit, but mm-hmm. you did a wonderful episode on Mamie Burl. Thank you. And I've chosen somebody who's much different than her, mm-hmm. but the two women kind of shared, I think, similar values. Yeah. So let's hear a little bit more about the history of your author. Mm. I want to start off with a brief disclaimer. Mm-hmm. My author is a Swede. Okay. And so there's some Swedish terms that come up. Uh-huh. And I'm going to do my very best. I believe in you. I do too. I feel like I'm I manage... I'm a Swede at heart. I'm a Swede at heart, so I should be able to do this. Okay. Well, okay, so the woman, the author mm-hmm. that I have chosen is Frederica Bremer. That's beautiful. Thank you. But we're going to call her Frederic- Frederica <laughs> Bremer, okay? Okay. <clears throat> um, she was born at Tuorla Manor on August 17th, 1801, outside of Albo, Swedish Finland, which is now... Torku, Finland. She was the second of seven children, which included five daughters, of a wealthy and independent merchant named Karl, Karl Frederick Bremer, and his wife, Brigitte Carlotta Holstrom. Bremer's paternal grandparents were Jakob and Ulrika Frederica Bremer, and they were kind of important socially because they had developed one of the largest business empires in Greater Sweden. But Bremer's father, Karl, liquidated the business assets after his parents' death. So they were wealthy. Yeah, they were exceptionally wealthy. Okay. Um, they were not aristocrats, uh-huh. but they were upper, upper middle class. Uh, no, upper, upper class. That's what to say. Not middle class, mm-hmm. all the way up. The family relocated from Swedish Finland to Sweden when Bremer was three years old as a result of the Napoleonic Wars, during which time Finland was ceded from Sweden to Russia. And she subsequently grew up in Stockholm or between Stockholm and Arsta Castle in Osterhaninge. I don't know if I said that right. You got it in my ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that village is, or was, 20 minutes outside of the Swedish capital. Uh-huh. So I guess it'd be the equivalent of, say, um, London, and then having a home in Berkshire. Okay. You know, it's quick yeah. in and out, but you're far enough outside of town that you have a country manor. Uh-huh. 
and it was a castle. Mm. So the family spent their summers at the castle and at another estate owned by her father, but they wintered in Stockholm. And that was kind of the standard for the period. Uh Um, You think about it being Scandinavia, you're spending several months in total darkness. So instead of staying in your castle, you go into town where at least you can go to the opera. Instead of staying in your castle. (laughs) (laughs) What a chore. You get to go into town and kind of, you know, where there's brightness and there's activity. So that's what they did. And Bremer and her sisters were raised to be upper class socialites and hostesses, like their French trained mother. Brimmer was carefully and thoroughly educated, and as a young woman, she traveled extensively throughout Europe. Her education was kind of conventional, and it focused on domestic tasks of the time that were expected of wealthy women. So, um, embroidery, piano, dance, things like that. So, when you said domestic, I thought like housekeeping, that would be odd. mm -mm. We're not talking about how to clean a dish or how to sweep a floor. Yeah. We're talking about what would be expected of a wealthy wife. Yeah. Fundamentally. And language skills, I guess, too. Exactly. She was actually fluent in French, English, and German, of course, as well as Swedish. Yeah. So she was a very intelligent young woman. Yeah, definitely. Yes, and very well trained. She and her sisters were privately tutored in their family's home. And their lives were governed by a strict timetable. So it was kind of like you get up in the morning and your day is planned out verbatim into like mm-hmm. the T until you go to bed. In the That's evening. the kind of thing where like you see rich people and they're like miserable mm-hmm. and you're like, you're filthy rich. Why are you miserable? And they're just like, there's so much pressure and expectations. Right. Like I could see that happening it's in this type of situation. Very, very stressful. And here's an interesting bit of information. When the family was... In Stockholm, it was not socially acceptable for girls to be seen outside in a sort of recreational capacity. So she and her sisters took their exercise by holding onto the backs of chairs and jumping up up and down. Oh my god! That's how the family made sure that they burned energy throughout the day. Wow. Because they couldn't go outside with their brothers and kind of play in the yard. That's terrible. Yeah. So it was very stifling Mm -hmm. environment. She actually described her home life as being, quote, under the oppression of a male iron hand. Yep. She debuted into Swedish society in 1822 um, after she took a long tour of Europe. I think it was like two years she and her sister spent in the Netherlands and in Italy and things like that. Um, but shortly thereafter, upon debuting, she fell into a relatively deep depression. She couldn't stand the thought of facing a life... Um, of seclusion that most ladies faced mm-hmm. where okay you get dr- drug out for parties yeah but otherwise you're shuttered into the house and you can't even exercise exactly move. i mean after that freedom of that two-year tour that you probably experienced oh, yeah. it's understandable she described the sensation of returning home as suffocating mm. after you know kind yeah. of walking through your because castles like are beautiful and, and mm-hmm. you know grand but oh, you yeah. could definitely see it as a prison oh absolutely They're fortresses exactly yeah After her father's death in 1830, her private income enabled her to devote her life to social work, traveling, and writing. She started working at a Stockholm hospital, but one of her sisters put a pretty swift end to that because it wasn't socially acceptable. So she started doing charity work around her family estate, and she kind of functioned, I guess, in a a lady bountiful capacity. Mm -hmm. So on the estate, you had people who worked, and it was like villages included, so she'd go around and make sure everybody was well tended to. Her first printed work had a long Swedish title, but in English it's called Sketches of Everyday Life. And it was published in three parts between 1828 and 1831. 
And it was kind of groundbreaking in that it introduced a new and everyday tone of realism into Swedish literature. She actually became known pretty quickly as the Nordic Jane Austen. Oh, wow. So, you know, Jane Austen's novels deal with sort of the personal lives of real people or the idea that these aren't like Robin Hood and Maid Marian. Yeah. They're just people who are trying to get their lives figured out. Yeah. And there's also a level of hearth and home, which makes it real. And that's what Bremer brought to the Swedish literary scene. It's funny, though, when I think of Jane Austen, I think of looking at the private lives of these wealthy people, Mm -hmm. but the language is still very elevated and... It's hard to connect to in a lot oh, of ways. Oh, and that speaks to how formal the writing was prior to these women uh-huh. introducing realism yeah. into the fiction exactly. scene. The Swedish Academy actually awarded Bremer their lesser gold medal on January 1st, 1831 for her work Family H, which was part of her Sketches of Everyday Life collection. Ah. So they rewarded her for her That's groundbreaking cool. work. Yeah. Yes. Now, here's an interesting fact. The period of time in which she's writing was a very tough one for her because the Swedish civil code, which was the like code of law and order in Sweden mm-hmm. during the time in which she um, lived, said that all unmarried women were minors under the guardianship of their closest male relative until marriage, yeah. at which point they were placed under the guardianship of their husbands. So, only divorced or widowed women were granted automatic legal majority. That means, as a Swedish woman... She'd have to marry someone, kill them. I'm joking. Well, it just means that (laughs) you would never Uh be considered an adult or have the capacity of, like personal decision-making as an adult. So ridiculous. Well, at this point, her father was dead. She was mm-hmm. unmarried. So, uh-huh. she was a ward of her brother. Was he, were her brothers younger? Mm-hmm. Her eldest sibling was a sister, so oh her brothers gosh. were younger. And he was responsible for managing her personal estate, and he was very bad with money. He squandered his own fortune. That enrages me. So she got sick of that pretty quick. Yeah. And her only option was to petition the king of Sweden Uh for emancipation. And she was actually quickly granted emancipation. Wow. Mm -hmm. And from then then onward, she had full control of her own estate. And that really liberated her. Yeah. So in 1844, a few years later, and I want to mention this too, while she was writing, she was writing under pen names. Oh, okay. I couldn't find any in Were my research. Were they male names? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't okay. find any examples of her pen names because now all of her stuff is printed under Frederica Bremer. Yeah, um, but in 1844, the Swedish Academy awarded her their greater gold medal for her work Morning Watches, which was the first work she actually printed under her own name. Oh. Yeah. So about uh, almost 20 years after her first published work, she started using her own Oh my gosh, that is agonizing. I know it. Um, After that, she spent a lot of time traveling. And she lived in Norway for about five years. She spent a year living in Denmark. And then in 1849, she came to New York. She toured New England, she toured the South, and she toured the Midwest. And she came to America really with the intention of getting to experience a democratic society, Mm -hmm. which Sweden was not. Yeah. And she was fascinated. She got to see how American women lived their lives. Wait, what year was this? This was 1849. Okay, so slavery was still in play. Yes. Okay. So when she was in New England in the Mid-Atlantic, mm-hmm. she got to kind of experience that state of being. Yeah. And she spent a lot of time in the South and was fascinated by the institution of slavery in that she could not believe that it existed. So she was kind of horrified. She was. Okay, great. Because when you say that she came over here and was like 
very intrigued and mm-hmm. delighted by democracy. I was like, oh, that's great. But then mm-hmm. I was like, wait, what year is it? Because right. there are horrors that overshadow that democracy. Exactly. And she didn't gloss through or over the South. She spent time there. Uh-huh. And she got to see how American slaves were treated. Mm-hmm. And she got to see the sort of gaps between the way life was lived in the North and the way life was lived in the South. Yeah. She also spent time in the Midwest, which was still very much the frontier. Yeah. At this, in this wow, period of time. Wow, she really... Yes. Saw all of America. She, yes, she did. And when she was visiting uh-huh. the Midwest, I think she was maybe in Minnesota or Wisconsin, she said, this is the ideal place for a new Scandinavia. Really? And, and this period of history in America, almost everybody living in that part of the country were Scandinavian, were Scandinavian I was immigrants. I to say, that is a very Scandinavian yes. area. So, um, and she was very well received by the American public, and she never once had to pay for lodging while in the United States. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. She was invited into people's homes. What? Yes, and she spent um, a long time in America, and there are still traces of her legacy here. There is a county mm-hmm. named after her in Iowa, and a town named after her in Iowa. I love that this woman just rolled into America she did. and was like, yo, <laughs> I own this. And everybody loved her. Yeah. And the, the American Swedish Historical Museum in Philadelphia has a permanent room and exhibit dedicated to her work. What did she do here? Um, apparently was just this fabulous, interesting woman. Yeah, she. I mean, she was just here as a tourist. Yeah. But she also kind of inspired some cool things because to this day, there is a Frederica Bremer Intermediate School in Minneapolis. So there's a school named after her too. Something is not adding up here. She was just... I can't go on vacation to Nottingham, England, and then mm-hmm. there'll be like, you know, oh, Kate Austin School of well, Young Girls. She spent... <laughs> I gotta say, so she arrived in 1849. Uh-huh. She didn't return to Europe until 1851. Okay. So she, she was here for two years Uh and I guess I should mention this too her work was very popular in Sweden Mm -hmm. and it was quickly translated into English okay and it was very popular in England and in the United States so by the time she got over here they knew who she was it would be like I don't know if Wordsworth Mm -hmm. came to New York it would be a literary celebrity and she was a novelty too in that she was a Swede Mm -hmm. and also like you were saying a lot of Scandinavians Mm -hmm. were in the Minnesota and Iowa, so of course they would be even more receptive. Yeah, there was a kindredness between them. But she did, she spent a lot of time in America, and then she went and spent time in Spanish Cuba, and then returned to New York, and then went back to Europe. Okay. So by the time she got back to Europe, she had seen a huge swath of sort of the new world. She returned to Europe, and her novel, Hertha, which was published in 1856, was a fictionalized assault on the second-class status of adult women under the 1734 Civil Code, which was the Swedish Civil Code. And the book included an appendix recounting recent Swedish court cases on the topic of women's rights. Uh The work was so controversial and so intense that it produced what was called the Hertha Discussion that permeated Swedish society and reached Parliament in 1858. Wait, so this is a code written in 1734, mm-hmm. still in play in 1858? Yeah. Yes, and her novel struck such a chord mm-hmm. that Parliament had to discuss it. Now, let me say this. This period of time, Sweden was not an absolute monarchy, uh-huh. but much more absolute than what we, honestly, than probably what was happening in Britain yeah. under Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. And... Parliament was what was called a diet, which they still have in Japan. 
and it consisted of four different houses of authority consisting one governing legislative body and include nobility and the clergy and stuff like that. So it was kind of a complex system that really did preclude women in every capacity. So after Parliament started discussing the Hertha discussion, the old system was ultimately reformed to allow women to petition their nearest courthouse rather than the royal court for majority at age 25. So they had more access, but at 25. Whereas their male counterparts were receiving automatic majority at 21. Of course. Well, five years later, so in 63, the legislation was revisited and then all women were considered automatically of the age of majority at 25. They no longer had to petition for it. Still a lot longer, yeah. but it became automatic. Interestingly enough, Bremer was not in Sweden while the Hertha discussion was taking place. She was actually touring Europe and the Middle East at the I time. I love that. <laughs> yes, but she did return to Sweden in 1861, uh -huh. and she expressed great satisfaction with the national reforms. And by the way, she was also extremely enthusiastic uh -huh. uh, about the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States. Oh, great, yeah. Which she did live to That's, see. That's the dream, I think, as a writer, is to inspire change yeah. through your writing alone. Yes. Like, she wasn't there, like, beating on the door of Parliament, like, read my book and talk about it. Right. It was just like, I wrote this. It what are you going to do about it? It literally sparked a wave of social activism. That's that's incredible. Yes. Ugh. And by the way, uh -huh. she never married. I was going to ask that. I was like, she don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she she just... doesn't have time. But I will say this. When she was a young woman, she wrote, I want to kiss a man, breastfeed a baby, manage a household to be happy and think of nothing except for them and the praise of God. Uh -huh. She wrote that when she was very young and never got to experience. I wonder if that changed, you know, because well, I, I wrote a lot of things when I was younger that I would, don't want now. That's a, that's kind of, that's an interesting point because mm -hmm. it, this was not a woman who was kind of, whose options were limited. She was extremely popular in Swedish society. Mm -hmm. She was not an exceptional beauty, mm -hmm. but what she lacked in physical appeal, she made up for in personality, character, okay. and intellect. Um, she did receive at least one documented proposal, Whoa. which she promptly rejected when she was in her 20s. And she just lived a life of independence. Because even though a woman could reach legal majority at 25, married women were still under the guardianship of their husbands. Oh, wow. Under the, the legal system. And it's interesting because she was doing this work to gain her independence right. and the independence of other women. Right. So why would you confine yourself exactly. in that way by getting married. Yes, precisely. Yeah. So while she was sparking all this social change and people in America were welcoming her with open arms, um, by the time she died, her work was almost, it, it stopped being consumed, basically. Oh, wow. Did she stop writing? Or did... um, she wrote prolifically oh, okay. up until she died. She wrote a lot about her travels and things like that, but people kind of, I don't know if taste change, mm -hmm. attitudes changed or what, but they quit reading her stuff. She wound up dying on December 31st, 1865 at Arsta Castle, which is, you know, where she spent her life. Uh-huh. And what's interesting is, even though her works kind of waned in popularity, her name mm -hmm. became, be, was so emblazoned yeah. in the general consciousness of not just Sweden, but Europe, that it became synonymous with women's rights. Wow. There's a reason you and I have never heard of this woman. There's a reason why people in Sweden know her name, but maybe aren't familiar with her works. Mm -hmm. They're still not widely consumed. Which is really a shame. Yeah. So on that note, let's get into the reading. Yes. 
All right, so I'm going to be reading an excerpt from her book, Strife and Peace, which was translated by Mary Howitt into English in 1853. And just a little bit of information, the story takes place in Norway. Strife and Peace by Frederica Bremer. When Susanna had attained her twelfth year, her father married a second time, but became a second time a widower after his wife had presented him with a daughter. Two months after this, he died also. Near relations took charge of the orphan children. In this new home, Susanna learned to bear hardships. For there, as she was strong and tall, and besides that, made herself useful and was kind-hearted, they made her soon the servant of the whole house. The daughters of the family said that she was fit for nothing else, for she could learn nothing, and had such unrefined manners. And besides that, she had been taken out of charity. She had nothing and so on, all which they made her feel, many a time, in no gentle manner, and over which Susanna shed many bitter tears, both of pain and anger. One mouth, however, there was which never addressed to Susanna other tones than those of affectionate love, and this was the mouth of her little sister, the little golden-haired Hulda. She had found in Susanna's arms a cradle, and in her care that of the tenderest mother. For from Hulda's birth, Susanna had taken the little forlorn one to herself, and never had loved a young mother, her firstborn child, more warmly and more deeply than Susanna loved her little Hulda, who also, under her care, became the loveliest and most amiable child that ever was seen. And woe to those who did any wrong to little Hulda. They had to experience the full force of Susanna's often strong-handed displeasure. For her sake, Susanna passed here several years of laborious servitude. As she, however, saw no end to this, yet was scarcely able to dress herself and her little sister befittingly, and besides this, was prevented by a multitude of her occupations from bestowing upon her sister that care which she required. Therefore, Susanna, in her twelfth year, looked about her for a better situation. Wow, I, I like that. Ooh, you know, I just said, I don't know if we're just choosing hard stuff or if you and I are losing our think, rhythmic skill yeah. here, but it's hard to read this stuff. I mean, you, I think you did a great job with the reading. Thank you. I think me in the last episode, which we just filmed before, we filmed. We videotaped it right before this. <laughs> no, we just recorded before this. Like, yeah. I obviously woke up and left my brain just like mm. somewhere this morning, but you did very well. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I felt tongue-tied. And I, But I love the story, and we mentioned before that she was called the Jane Austen of, like, Sweden yeah. or whatever, but I understood that and enjoyed it so much more <laughs> than I did Jane Austen with her twisty words mm -hmm. and incredibly long sentences. Right. This was very easy to follow, mm -hmm. and I the first thing I thought, like, literally after the, la the, the first two lines that you read was like, oh, this is a fairy tale. Like, immediately yeah. it deals with death in, in such a light way. Yeah. Like, the way that fairy tales say, oh, well, her father was widowed, was mm -hmm. it? Twice. Twice. Yeah, and it's like, okay, that's just part of the story, let's move on. Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting. It was, like, detached from emotion almost. And that speaks really heavily to, I think, Scandinavian writing in general, which mm. is way fairy tale esque. You know, the probably the two Scandinavian authors that most American readers are familiar with are Hans Christian Andersen, yes. who wrote things like The Little Mermaid, uh -huh. and um, Isak Dennison, or the mm. Baroness Blixen, 
who wrote memoirs but also delved really deeply into fairy tale style writing with things like Babette's Feast yeah. and that kind of thing. So I think it's part of the Scandinavian literary tradition. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I love how you talked about earlier how she had written when she was younger that she wanted to be a mother and just like yeah. a homemaker, basically. And how she approaches this relationship between Susanna and Holda <laughs> in, a, in a kind of fairy tale, like, oh, this is like my yes. first daughter and I'm caring for this child and I love it. It's how I imagine her not having experienced motherhood mm-hmm. but possibly wanting to it just expresses her idea right. of what motherhood might be like yes. but still has like a detachment there because it's not actually her daughter right i see i for some reason envisioned her picturing herself as susanna yeah oh i totally can i can see that myself there are several layers of femininity motherhood womanhood girlhood expectation woven into this piece mm-hmm. and this is a very short excerpt yeah. You know, a very tiny bit of a, a But look novel. how much has gone into it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we talked a lot about motherhood last episode, specifically black motherhood. Yeah. And this is different um, in that it's taking place in Europe, and it's kind of like adopted or surrogate motherhood, too. It is. But at the same time, somehow, in comparison to black motherhood in America, there's no risk, it seems. There's nothing threatening it or questioning it, Mm -hmm. you know? It's validity, even though this is surrogacy, which would traditionally be something that would be questions, Mm -hmm. like, oh, you're not really her mother. Mm -hmm. It's something that's very, oh, yes, I act as her mother, and this is fine. So it's interesting to see that comparison. And she's playing a lot on the idea of instinct. Mm, yeah. that the older sister would immediately assume a mothering role for the little one and that she would be, be very protective and sort of aggressive to someone who would want to hurt the little sister whereas Susanna is not really sticking much up for herself. She's allowing herself to be forced into servitude. Mm-hmm. So it speaks a lot about instinct. Yeah, and then like that sacrifice of being mm-hmm. a mother that we did discuss in the yeah. last episode. It's like, oh, well, now this is the most important thing. Right. This is all I really care about, being a mother. And it says, you know, in Hulda's 12th year, mm-hmm. so ostensibly Susanna would be 24 at the end of the passage I read, yeah. she says, I'm going to have to find something better so that I can provide a better life for yeah. Hulda. And kind of similarly to the way Borel, in episode 11, was writing about something of which she had no real personal experience, I feel like that's what Bremer is doing here. Mm -hmm. She's never been an uh, an orphan. She's never been poor. She's never been anybody's maid. But kind of like Borel, she's a humanitarian. Mm -hmm. So she's probably seen some things. And she may be writing from an anthropological perspective, meaning even though she's never been a 12-year-old orphan raising a a little sister, Mm -hmm. she's probably gone and sort of... Witnessed that. Exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And everything she wrote on some level was speaking to the condition of women and girls in Scandinavia. So even though this is a kind of fairy tale about a young woman who's having to sort of fight to bring her little sister up in dignity. Yeah. It's saying something about what kind of society do we live in where an orphaned woman, an orphaned girl, uh-huh. can be fundamentally enslaved by her family. Definitely. Why do we live in such a uh-huh. society? And she's trying to function within those conditions right. where it feels like almost the only thing that she could last. She's not saying that she wouldn't care for her little sister, mm-hmm. but it's almost a distraction for her to be like, I am basically enslaved by my family. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for something, some ounce of control or 
something to live for, and she finds her little sister. That's that. exactly right. Yeah, and I, it's weird when you think about this writing and the work that Bremer was doing uh-huh. during this period of time in the 1850s and 60s, because today Scandinavian function, Scandinavia functions as a bastion of human rights. Mm-hmm. You yeah. think about it, that is the place in the world where they're probably perceived as most accepting. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the wage gap between men and women is like the smallest, yes. right, in Scandinavia. And women get like two years maternity leave mm-hmm. and all kinds of other fascinating things. And maybe that has to do with the fact that you have a Frederica Bremer who's stirring actual change yeah. in the 18th And she couldn't have been the only one. Mm-mm. But the, the thing that blows my mind is maybe, it's, maybe because Sweden is a smaller country, mm-hmm. but the fact that she wrote this and we talked about how she wrote this work and she didn't stay and she wasn't like protesting in the streets but that had the the biggest impact so maybe these people just had an open mind in general yeah i mean they had those the codes what is the women's code the civil code the civil code that was written in the 1730s and stayed around for over 100 years yet they were open enough to make changes yeah that says a lot about their society I want to say a little bit about this, you and me sitting here in Louisiana as two Louisianans. Mm-hmm. Um, the Swedish Civil Code functioned very similarly to the Napoleonic Code, which yeah. is the law under which you and I live here in Louisiana. Yeah. And I've been actually doing some study on Louisiana laws, and there's some fascinating stuff. Like, in Louisiana until 1987, a woman surrendered all property rights to her husband upon marriage, unless there was a document disputing it otherwise. Oh my gosh. So what happened was, and this is until 1987. Yes. Right before we were born. Right before we were born. (laughs) What would happen is if you married a man, and let's say your father left you, Five acres in Algiers Point. Yeah. Okay, you marry your husband. Well, he falls on hard times. He lists the property, sells it. You don't have to sign the deed of sale. You don't have to do any sort of, you know, you don't have to provide any information to the courthouse. And it's legal. You can't dispute it. You can't go to court and say he stole it. So the code under which they were living kind of... (laughs) In that time period, in the 1980s, that's the crazy part. So, you know, even though this seems really far removed... You and I live in a sphere in which... It was the yesterday. Civ- exactly. Yeah. And the civil code exists here still, like mm-hmm. it does still in Sweden. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been altered a lot over the years. But um, I think probably for m- most of our listeners who live in other parts in the United States, they live under um, English common law standards, mm-hmm. whereas we don't. So some things probably if you and I were to sit down with them and talk about, they'd be like, what? What? <laughs> but when it said civil code and... You know, it, it kind of brought me back to our laws because the civil code is not very kind to women and yeah. stuff like that. So I just want to throw that in there. Yeah, no, that's a great fact. But also, <laughs> yeah, but also say that the the great thing is we sit here in 2018, and people in Sweden can look back 165 years or 170 years and say, look at the change that's happened. And you and I can sit here and, and kind of say the same thing about the world in which we live. Yeah. And it's due in large part to people like Frederica Prema, who basically wrote what they felt. Exactly. I no, when you said that she mostly wrote about things and issues in Sweden, mm-hmm. that I, I thought that was so awesome because she spent a lot of time traveling, but her heart was always at home. And I feel like I have that this great mm-hmm. connection to New Orleans mm-hmm. in my home. So I love that dedication. 
And she was wealthy enough. I mean, we have to think in terms of, I don't even know that I can think of somebody that we could compare her to, but she was so wealthy. This is a woman that literally could have lived anywhere she wanted and never had to do a thing, yeah. pick up a pen or anything. But you're right, she spent a lot of time traveling, but always returned home to Sweden. She died in her family estate. Uh-huh. And the changes she enacted, they had a global impact, but she was most pleased with the changes she saw at home. And it's, it's really interesting because she's considered a feminist. Mm-hmm. She's considered maybe one of the biggest feminists of the 19th century in Europe. But if you sat down with her, I think she would have maybe been confused by the term feminists in the way that we view it in t- the 21st century. Uh-huh. Because what she was doing is living a relatively quiet life. She was not out picketing. She wasn't chaining herself to the wheel of a carriage for suffrage. You know what I mean? She was just writing something. And it was coming from a very pure place, Mm -hmm. not a militant one. Yeah. She was. I don't want us to think that all feminists are militant. They're not. No, there's different levels of feminism. Yeah. And for her, it was... I guess what I'm thinking about in terms of her work is she was writing and probably... I think the way she felt was the change she saw as a result of her writing probably was somewhat surprising to her in that she was saying, whoa, I was writing when I felt. All I had to do was write. Yeah, and, and look what's happened. bringing up the society that like, Sweden must mm-hmm. have that they would listen to writing oh, because yeah. it seems like in America, the suffrage movement was like huge. The women uh-huh. had to do so much to even be heard. Yes. And even then, mostly white women benefited mm-hmm. from that. So it's just like the fact that she could write a book and mm-hmm. she was listened to and other women were listened to is incredible. Yeah, and you know, you're talking about the society in which she lived and how open they were. Scandinavia has kind of been at the fore of many civil rights movements. You know, they women there mm-hmm. had the right to vote several years before American women had the right to vote in 1920. Mm-hmm. Um, white American women. Ex- white American women yeah. gained universal suffrage in uh-huh. 1920. You know, um, Denmark was the first country in the world to offer civil official civil unions to same-sex couples in 1989. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, How so they're, they're kind of, they like to lead the way. Yeah. And I don't know if it has to do with it being cold, so they're just a little more... Or just small. Yeah. And I'm like, like, why... How? I'm so jealous. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, they're like, oh yeah, we didn't think that women wanted the right to vote. Here you go. And I know it wasn't that easy. I'm comparing it to the struggle that it is to get anything done here in America. But it's it's great. Like I said, you know, chaining yourself to the wheel of a carriage, that's what British and American suffragettes had to do. do. They had to go on hunger strikes. I mean, to think that they got same-sex marriage in 1989 and we just got it. Yeah, 2015. Oh, oh my God, 2015. <laughs> so it's been a long gap. But I chose this this writer because, A, I'd never heard of her. Mm-hmm. B, she's kind of emblazoned in feminist history. Yeah. You know, we're celebrating Women's History Month. Yay! And um, she celebrated many aspects of both traditional femininity uh-huh. And sort of trailblazing femininity. Yeah. She never married and, and, you know, never made much of an issue about it. Mm-hmm. But she also sort of thought the idea of being a mother was a glorious thing. Yeah. So she wasn't sitting back saying, I chose not to marry and that's superior. Yeah. 
But I do want to get back to her writing. Because yeah. We talked about it. We said that it was it reminded us of like fairy tale mm-hmm. type writing, um, which makes sense because of where she's from. But if I'm honest, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a little bland. It was like if I sat down and I wanted to write something very safe mm-hmm. or if I just wanted to describe to an alien what writing was, <laughs> I'd be like, here, read this little cute story Why? about being a human, you know? Well, you know, we have to bear in mind this is a translation mm. that Bremer did not make herself. That's true. And B, you know, the we talked a little bit about the Scandinavian writing traditions. I don't know enough about it mm-hmm. to really expound deeply on what they expected from literature. Yeah. But, you know, she was writing 160 years ago. And unlike Austin, who... Jane Austen, who mm-hmm. was writing really sort of languid and flowery and mm-hmm. in deep p- prose. Yeah. Yeah, Brimmer's is much more low-key and much more, you know, cadenced, I yeah, would say. Yeah, you used the, the word realist or realism mm-hmm. before, and I think that's very on point. Yes. I This is long before it, but I... I've been learning more about the modernist movement, mm-hmm. at least in America, and it's like the cutting out of that very flowery sure. language that was very popular in the Victorian era, mm-hmm. and I appreciate it so much because I yes. feel like I can connect to the stories a lot better, <clears throat> and for someone in the 1830s, right? Yeah, she was writing in the early and mid-19th century. Yeah, for me to be able to understand anything that she's saying at that time is, is very important and great. I want to say this also. She's living in the period of time which we call Victorian in the Anglosphere, mm. okay? And, sure. you know, around the same time in France and Spain, it was the Belle Epoque. Mm. Well, in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, which, by the way, Sweden and Norway were one kingdom mm-hmm. under the king of Sweden, there was a heavy push towards uber-morality. The literature being consumed in court, uh-huh. at the Swedish court and the Danish court, were like sermons, and stuff so what she's producing there what's being consumed by people in her country was not the same as what was being consumed in Britain I mean Charles Dickens was writing the same during the same period that she was but from Dickens to be considered immoral wait is that what you were saying no no I'm just saying the concepts of morality were different and you know Britain morality was kind of defined by Anglican concepts of religion and the Anglican concepts of religion are sort of, I would say, liberal Catholic views, Uh right? (laughs) Whereas the Scandinavian countries practice Lutheranism, which is much more puritanical Uh than what was happening in Britain. How confining is that to art in general? Oh, heavily. Just, oh, mm-hmm. You know, to have to worry about being called a heretic if you're just trying to write a yeah. short story. And, 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 you know, that being said, people weren't being um, prosecuted <laughs> in Scandinavia. It's Good. just tastes were, div- you know, yeah. it's like survival of the fittest. You know, things evolve based on natural selection. Well, mm. artistically speaking, the stuff that is produced is a direct result of what's being consumed. Yeah. So people were selecting what kind of art they wanted to consume. And Frederica Bremer's stuff was Uh widely consumed in part because it was a very clean... I would say it seemed very safe. Yeah, very clean, direct writing style. Yeah. At least what we can read. I mean, neither you nor I 
understand or are literate in Swedish. Speak for yourself. <laughs> oh, I'm I forget. I'm actually one-eighth Swede. <laughs> I don't know. I will say this. We were in Iceland. <laughs> we went to a pharmacy, pharmacy in Reykjavik. <laughs> I forgot about And, this. you know, whenever I have traveled in Europe and if when I've gone up to pay for something in Denmark and in Sweden and stuff... They'll try and speak to me, like they, they engage with me uh-huh. in Danish and Swedish, and I'm like, I'm so sorry I don't speak. Well, in Iceland, I guess because I'm tall, they they knew that I wasn't Icelandic. You prance up to the counter to buy chapstick, and the woman starts click, 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 lickety, lick, 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 talking in Icelandic, and I'm standing behind you, and you, smug as a pussycat, are like, yeah, yeah. And then she finishes and gives you your change, and you're like, talk. <laughs> and I'm like, and she never once questioned Me, this black woman being a mom. She thought that I was just an Icelandic black woman. She thought I mean, that. I'm six feet tall, so yes. she's like, oh, you obviously have a Scandinavian uh-huh, father. That's right. And she was just speaking in Icelandic, and I was just like, huh? I'm going to, pr- like, it's because I followed the formula. Mm-hmm. You go into a store, you, you carry in what That's you right. want. You give it to the cashier. They, they're like, this is how much mm-hmm. it costs. So she said that in Icelandic. I slid her some money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like she finished the transaction. And she kind of looked at me like, you're not really saying anything. But okay, let's go with it. And then uh-huh. she gave me my change. And I was like, talk. And then she was like, talk. And I was like, and Jaffer, Jaffer was just like, what just happened? We got out of the store and I said, honey, do you know how many promos she gave you back? I'm like, we don't know if you got proper change, but you're like, it was worth it. That exchange was priceless. <laughs> I felt like I was an Icelandic woman just for half a second in the center of Reykjavik. So I guess if you were to go to Stockholm. Yeah, I could fake it. Yeah, you could. You could even say stuff like, oh, Frederica Bremer. Yeah. And they'd be like, she knows what's going on. She knows. On. As, as a light-skinned black woman, like, I have been able to be like, I'm half this so many times. Like, mm-hmm. someone will say something racist about, like, some Asian person. Right. And I'm like, my dad is uh, Japanese. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's hilarious. So your superpower is being able to shame other people, it's regardless of circumstances. To lie. Yeah, be like, hey, you racist. <laughs> I'm half, uh, I don't know, Argentinian. <laughs> This was a fun talk. It was. I mean, this ended very oddly. Yes. But yes, Frederica Bra. <laughs> Folks, that's her famous uh, Scandinavian pronunciation. Told technique. you I was Swedish. Well, you know, we've really been pushing ourselves to go beyond what, you know, is expected. Um, we've been trying to find people of color. We've been trying to find queer people. And when we were thinking of femininity, I was bound bent and bloody determined that it was going to be a non-American. Me too. And okay, we both, both, and we didn't even talk about it, but you looked into like Japanese I authors. I looked into Japanese authors. Mm-hmm. Then we tried to find someone who was Latina or, mm-hmm. and, and it was just impossible. Everything was in Spanish. Nothing was translated. <sighs> Everything was in Japanese. And we were so upset about it. Yeah, but we we kind of decided, you know, it is tough because we're trying to kind of, we were exploring, you know, like 19th century, early 20th century mm-hmm. authors, and the truth is the bulk of them are white, and that makes it a challenge, yeah. but that's why we're doing this. The bulk of them that are readily available <laughs> that's where you to go. us, that are easy to find, right. and that is why this podcast exists. I, we say it every time, but I'm like... This is why. We mm-hmm. have to dig for people of color mm-hmm. or queer people, and it's a shame. Yes. So, I mean, I guess we have to commit to doing the research deeply in order to find it. And using resources like JSTOR. Yeah. 
things. Because it, I don't know about you, but it really deepens my concept of ideas like feminism or humanitarianism when I hear about people like Frederica Bremer, who I've never heard of. Yeah. Who I never would have heard of because nobody's trying to talk about her. Exactly. Who had to go about her feminism in a different way than we we right. are familiar with. In a period of time where feminism was, you know, that being said, you know, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, these were women yeah, this who was lived. Happening here it too. was, but yeah. I'm like thinking, you know, in terms of huge impact, Parliament having to address an issue as a result of art, mm-hmm. she was having this tremendous impact. And, um, you know, we don't live in Sweden, but we do live in a global society. Mm-hmm. So... Frederica Bremer's work and the impact she had on her country directly impact you and me in 2018. So I'm excited that we got to talk about her. Yeah, this is a good choice. I'm glad that we both chose different topics within our same topic. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so this this is really good. I'm I'm proud of it. Once again, this has been a successful meeting of the minds. (laughs) It has been, and we never need to do it. Okay, so this has been episode 12 of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kinchin. And thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more. Write a little better. And and explore explore the the human human condition condition together. together.